Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. We have a super Sunday for you. Three incredible races. This podcast and our Giro show is brought to you by our partner, LeCole, who produce performance road cycling apparel. They provide the kit for Byron McLaren in the Pro Peloton. And if you want to check out their kit, you can find them at www.lecole.cc, L-E-C-O-L.cc, and enter code LR015, all caps, at checkout to get yourself 15% off at checkout. That discount, I believe, is just running for the entirety of the Giro d'Italia. So you've got about a week left for that to apply. But for today's podcast, I think on a Super Sunday and the way we watch the races, it's going to make the most sense for us to bring you along on the story of how we watch these races in chronological order because that will make sense about where we dived into them because there was a lot of overlap uh, with these races. So We'll describe it with men's Flanders and then everyone cut to the last, the finale of the Giro, Biancavallo stage 15, and then women's Tour of Flanders last 50Ks. Uh, so that's that's how everyone watching today all around the world watch the races because uh, of the time overlap. So we're going to do it in, in that order. But Tour of Flanders, Benji, just remind everybody, Antoine de Oudenard, what the parkour looked like. Obviously, I'm not allowed to do Belgian parkour anymore. <laughs> it's a bit of a shorter parkour than usual. They shortened it because they had to do evasive action among the mood that was disappearing from the parkour this year. And because of that, you've got an out with 120 kilometers to go. And that basically starts the action. Before that, we've got two cobble sectors that usually don't have too much action. Lippenhoverstrad and Padestrad after 80 kilometers of racing. That's usually done by the breakaway and then by the peloton without too much stuff happening maybe some punctures but they've got plenty of time after that to come back so no real worry there but 120 kilometers in first time out of quadramont of three times in the race that is one of the real spare points of this race together with the paterberg there's a combination of those two towards the end of the stage twice after the outer quadrum on the first time, we've got a section with multiple hills. You've got the Eichenberg, the Wolfenberg, Holloweg, then a Hachu cobble section. This is a cobble sector that is known for being quite long. After that, the Leberg, Berendris is all in the span of like 20 kilometers. So that is a real moment in the race where stuff can already start happening with a good 100k to go, 90k to go, somewhere around there. Then there's a bit of a rest moment. We've got the Valkenberg and a plateau section of 20 kilometers with one hill in between the Kanariberg. But the thing is, sometimes it looks like this Kanariberg is quite easy to do, but that one can really do some damage as well. Now, 10 kilometers later, there's still that plateau section, and then we go towards the first combination, the first combo of the Autoquadermont and the Paterberg. After those two, you go towards the Koppenberg, Steenberg 3 is very short after the Koppenberg, actually, so you can't rest at this moment. 
and then there's a Thionberg. So if action has to happen in this race, it's usually between the second out of Quaramont and the Thionberg that the race opens up. I think last year in 2019, they waited much longer and that caused Betiol to be able to ride away on the last out of Quaramont and Paterberg. This year that did not happen. Spoilers. And basically between the Thionberg and that last combination of the out of Quaramont and Paterberg, there's one or two hills in between there, but they're not that important. It's it's a bit of a attrition race from that point onwards. The small hills and the combination of just hills, descents, hills, descents, keep styring people out. And if you're not in the right split at that point, that's where a gap can be growing and growing and growing towards the last Auto Quaramont and Paterberg, which is with about 20 kilometers to go. So Auto Quaramont, once again, Paterberg has the last kilometer day, and then there's a 14 kilometer flat to the finish line. That is basically the finish in Audenarde, and it's known for being a wide, flat street in Audenarde to have a potential majestic sprint if multiple riders go there. Do you feel like a race like the Tour of Flanders needs a more iconic finish no i don't really care i quite like having the wide angle shot of the the wide street with all the flags normally and yeah i don't mind it it's never been a thing that's really bothered me or, or i've thought about um to be honest and i'm sure it's easier for the race to organize it there and it's probably safer to have it there as well uh there was today there was a, a doomed breakaway as there always is in tour of flanders there's i don't know Mulberger went in that break and he, we remember him having issues with his health in the Tour de France, and I think the most memorable, most memorable part of the first hundred kilometers of today is when Mulberger for Bora was in the break, took a musette, and he went in the process of throwing it, wrapped it around his handlebars, and yeah, d- caused himself to crash. Um, pretty embarrassing for him, but I think luckily he seemed to be okay. He got a Shimano neutral service vehicle, but an unusual way to crash. I haven't seen a rider doing that recently. Uh, I think Battistella was also in the breakaway, Benji, but you you probably got a full list of, of who was in that break. The break, I don't think it rarely wins or has an impact in Flanders, unlike Roubaix, where sometimes the break, well, Heyman was in the early break in Roubaix 2016, but Flanders, I generally don't take too much notice of who's in the breakaway. Yeah, I agree. We had Mulberger, like you said, from Bora Hansgrohe, Heis van Hooker from CCC. He's going to Ajazer next year to work with Vrauvermaat and Oliver Nassen. Batistella from NTT, the official world champion U23, or at least from last year. I'm not sure if that continues onwards anyway. Dimitri Peiskens from Wallonie-Bussel. Van Poppel, I think it's Danny Van... or Boy Van Poppel. I don't know. I don't know which Van Poppel it was, but it's mainly the Van Poppel that we saw in the race, and uh, that is for Wanty. And then we've got Van den Boschke, which rides for Sport Vlaanderen, but as you said, this breakaway was doomed, but some other riders as well, to be honest. We had plenty of punctures and crashes in this race in the first 150 kilometers. And the most notable ones were Seneschal puncturing and Fanat actually crashing in a ditch by the side of the road somewhere after a good 80 kilometers. So the action hadn't started yet, but it's a bit of a scary moment if you see Fanat standing by the side of the road just having crashed. There were quite a few riders that looked a bit worse than him, mainly a Movistar rider. I didn't hear too much from that rider afterwards, so I'm hoping that the injuries are relatively okay. We also had a crash of Florian Vermeers and a puncture of, well, the elegant quick-step car 
It's called Elegant Quickstep for once because the Koenig has some new window concept for houses and that's called Elegant. And that's why the team is now called Elegant Quickstep for one stage only. And yeah, their car had a puncture. It doesn't happen often in cycling, but very notable to see. But plenty of stuff happening. The breakaway, keeping a, a gap that is not overly notable at the start, that's a good eight minutes. But you see that slowing down and slowing down and lowering and lowering as the race really follows up. And yeah, it just continued like that because the Peloton really didn't have a team that was looking like they were going to open it too early. I wasn't really expecting major action on the first Auto Quadramont, but the main major moment in the middle of the race, to me, because we've had some history in Paris-Roubaix, if I recall correctly, with a similar thing, was when a rail crossing decided to, to go down and... That was just after an attack of Bose and Hagen in the peloton. So Hagen had a good maybe 15 second gap on the peloton. And the rail crossing just closed just after Hagen passed. I think he still rode through the red, to be honest. Got to note that because, yeah, Lose, listening to the non-commentary version of it, you just hear the alarm of the rail crossing going off. So a bit of an illegal move. But then the rail crossing went down. The organization didn't stop the breakaway. I don't know what the rules on that are, but it didn't really bother anyone in the end, I'm pretty sure. The peloton had to wait. They waited. No riders crossed this time, which is good. A very big difference compared to the last time we had this happening in a race. And when it started again, the riders started crossing already once the alarm was still going off and the light was still red. So basically the peloton could just be dequeued there, but yeah, obviously they're not going to do that because then we're having a battle between... Eiskens and Mulberger for Tour of Flanders, which is a rather odd concept to think about. The real action, I would say, started on the second Auto Quadramont, or do you feel like it was a bit earlier? Uh, I thought it was the with about 71 case to go uh, on the Canarieberg, so I'm not wearing that in the profile as that. that. Yeah, I think that's before the Auto Quadramont, I think, because... Ineos were taking up the race and it did cause splits and it definitely tired out riders. So they had the breakaway at 2.40, 71k to go, and it was Kwiatkowski and uh, Luke Rowe, actually. Luke Rowe putting Kwiatkowski in good position, and I'm pretty sure there was an attack with Rowe and Stebar. And then, sorry, it's actually maybe Rowe setting him up, then Kwiatkowski attacking, and he was looking pretty good. Van Marker crashed with Bessiger. They had the two Education First guys crashed about this time as well. And I'm pretty sure that, yeah, Stebar was just marking at this point. He'd had Alaphilippe behind him. He's probably got Seneschal as the second-tier favourite if it came down to a sprint. And he didn't really seem to be helping the two Ineos, the Ineos riders too much. So, I mean, credit to Kwiatkowski, I guess, for, for trying. But, yeah, it, it really heated up Benji, as you said, uh, on the Quadramont, but I still think that move from Ineos made the race harder for everybody. Yeah, indeed. I feel like the Koenig was the only team... I'm going to call them the Koenig. I'm not going to call them elegant. It just sounds a bit meh. <laughs> yeah, DQ. <DQ-ed. laughs> yeah. So in the Peloton, you said Devenins and the Koenig and Stibar, they were all marking people and trying to make sure nobody got away in that middle section there. And we saw some smaller attacks. I think we saw the likes of Niels Eikhoff marking people as well for Søren Kra Andersen. And it was clear that nobody was really going to get away before that section. And then suddenly out of nowhere, I saw David Ains and Alaphilippe having like 
a gap of 20 seconds. This was, I think, before the outer Quartermon section. And yeah, I was like, are they actually going to just let him ride away? Because it's still Alaphilippe, come on. And Lotto Citadel was the team that closed that down, a team that had Wellens crash earlier on in the crash of Wout Fanat, looked a bit worse than Wout Fanat, and never really went into the race really again. So that's a bit unfortunate, but Lotto Citadel clearly still had a plan for John Degenkolb in this race as they were closing that gap down to Alaphilippe. Now, the next out of Guatemont, were you expecting too much on that? And did it actually turn out like that? So where, where, what, the way I saw it was the first ascension of the, the Paterberg with about 55 k's to go. That's where Dries Stevenens launched Alaphilippe and they had Dylan Van Baal with them. That caused the peloton, I think, to split. And all day, uh, Jumbo Visma, I nearly called them Lotto and El Jumbo. Jumbo Visma had, I think, Van <laughs> Vanart for like 200 k's. They had him quite far back. And I was kind of concerned. I was thinking, well, this could split at any moment because Quickstep and Ineos aren't playing around right now. And if he's on the wrong side, he's going to have to bridge a gap on his own. And he did end up having to actually bridge a gap later on his own. But yeah, I was thinking, was, is Wapanat not? Is he struggling after that crash when he went into the into the grass? Um, and yeah, it just looked like Jumbo Visma didn't really have the strength today, or he didn't have the appetite to be fighting at the front all day. Whereas Alaphilippe and Ineos were there pretty much, pretty much all day. And I think after that Paderberg, it was Bard, Roman Bard Day was like countering, and this was caused the paint that the race was like clearly on. It was splitting all the time, and it was a selection of the main contenders at the front group already. Narsen, I think, was working with Bardet a little bit. Peloton chased them back. I can't remember who. Still obviously had Bertiol, Quickstep, Welfenart, Alberson Phoenix with Matthew van der Poel. I think Kwiatkowski kind of got dropped at that point. Stefan Kung got dropped quite early, actually, with like 50 to go, which was a bit surprising. Uh, the climbs, the way they did the Paderberg was a little bit too hard for him. Might have even been the Aldequarmont he got he got dropped uh, there, and Alaphilippe launched a massive attack again. He's, I think, second attack of the day, and I can't remember what exact moment that was, Benji. He may met whether it was a descent or or not, um, but it was the big guys immediately trying to get across to him because he got a pretty big gap. Vanapol, Betiol, Vanard, Nyssen were following, and I think it was mainly Van der Poel and Van Aert pulling. I didn't really see Betiol uh, close down at all. Can you remember when Alaphilippe launched that attack? Because for me, he was the most aggressive rider in today's race. I want to give credit to Alaphilippe right now about the way he animated today's race, attacking multiple times, even though he didn't look 100% comfortable on the cobbles, on the I think, the Quartermont initially. I think it was a section between the Koppenberg and the Steinberg, Dries, because... Just very shortly after, they went to the Thionberg, which I spoke about in the uh, preview before. It's known as the climb where Van Marke would attack, but Van Marke had an issue. At the back of the race, he, in that elite group, ended up crashing, and it was a pretty weird crash. I'm not actually sure what the cause of the crash was, but it just brought him out of contention, since at that moment, if you're not in the elite group or fighting at the front, then you're basically done for, because the next 45 kilometers of the race you're gonna have all-out action in every single group that is ahead and if we think more about that 
then you're caught behind if, if you crash and you get to the group, but these other guys got an extra, well, attack that they can still do while you're just hanging on and hoping that nobody attacks. So Van Marke was out of contention for the race itself at that point, so he wasn't going to do much anymore. And like you said, that first group was launching towards the Tyenberg, on which we again saw Alaphilippe trying to make a move and trying to drop some of the other people. And yeah, there were three riders that were in the clear after that time, Betty, and they were the ones we kind of expected today. We had Wout van Aert of Jumbo Visma. <laughs> Why am I saying their teams like, like we don't know what teams they ride on? Vanderpool for Alpes and Phoenix. And um, yeah, Alaphilippe in there as well. Those were the three riders that were clearly the strongest among the parkour today. And they made that difference. We had a, a bit of a gap to the followers then, a bit of a gap, and eventually that gap started growing and growing after that Tyenberg. Keep in mind, after this Tyenberg, there's a bit of a plateau section towards the Outerstraat and the Hotond. And after that, there's a descent towards the Outer Quartermont. So they had quite a margin, like I said in the, uh, in the profile explanation here, to build out the gap, to try and expand their gap on the group behind. And you know that the group behind has Kasper Asgren. You know that they have Stibar in there, Lampard, all riders that basically are not going to work in that group and are going to try and make it as hard as possible for anybody else to first start pacing there because they're going to block and sit in second wheel every time. And they're going to mark everybody that attacks and counter them to make sure that the tempo goes down again. And they did that perfectly. And I think Alps and Phoenix had some people in there as well doing very similar stuff, but I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure too many were left. One name I didn't expect in that second group was a rider from Wallonie Bruxelles, but I'm also not sure who it was, honestly. Haven't checked the uh, full results page yet, but very good ride from that guy. So uh, congratulations to uh, that person, I guess. I think it was Arjen Livens. That's one hell of a performance, but continuing onwards with the most important part of the race. Those two oh, riders... Can I just say... Can I just say today, it was Wout van Aert out of position having to bridge a gap on his own before the Tyenberg, I think. And van der Poel, who was alive to the Alaphilippe descent attack before the Tyenberg, and he got onto his wheel early and worked together with Alaphilippe. And it was Wout van Aert who'd been a bit out of position all day, I thought, having to bridge across. And that maybe cost him a little bit of energy. Um, so just remember that. We've been very critical. I've always been very critical of Matthew van der Poel, race positioning, etc. I didn't really see too many problems with it at all today. Um, and I guess the, the other thing that could have happened was with Askren in that group and Seneschal behind, I was thinking, should Alaphilippe sit up and not pull? And Alaphilippe never works probably with a breakaway, and today was the one day he decided to work probably with the breakaway, it was with Wout van Aert <laughs> and Matthew van der Poel with uh, Seneschal, Stieber and Lampard and Askren chasing behind because Askren actually tried to bridge across to give them an advantage because obviously Alaphilippe would be, you wouldn't be expecting him to beat both van der Poel and Wout van Aert in a sprint. But yeah, that's just by the by, I think Alaphilippe was the most aggressive rider today and uh, I, again, I'll give him give him credit for that. A bit of a controversial moment followed, and it was a moment that basically decided the race for one of the three riders in that front group. We had Wout van Aert riding with Van der Poel behind him and Alaphilippe behind him on the right side of the road. 
well, for them, the right side of the road, not for us viewers, because for us, it's the left side of the road. But they were riding towards a motorcycle and trying to use their draft to go past them and then keep on going. But Wout waited extremely long to pass the motorbike driver. I'm not saying it's Wout fault, but he waited long. And because of that, the riders behind him, first of all, Vanderpool, had to take very evasive action to try and get past the motorbike. And Alaphilippe, unfortunately, just smashed right into the back of that motorbike. And there's a lot of talk on Twitter, obviously, directly after that. Who's to blame? Who's the guy that caused the issue? Is it the motorbike for being in that position? Is it Alaphilippe for being inattentive? Is it Wout Fenard for looking for a danger that potentially could take out Alaphilippe, which is a real conspiracy theory on the internet right now? But what is your take on it? Well, first of all, if someone did this, say, on a local race or a group ride, you'd never ride with them again. So, but this isn't that. This is a race and everyone has to look out for themselves and be attentive. That being said, Wavanat moves off his line to go and follow this motorbike, which is decelerating to come to a halt. And then he very late pulls out. He doesn't give any sort of signal to him, the guys behind him, and neither does Matthew Vanderpol, who nearly crashes as well. I think, yeah, it's just a little bit weird from Wafanat, I thought, um, but it's still not his fault. Uh, at the end of the day, Alaphilippe, I think, took his hands off the bars, was trying to get on the team team radio. He was looking down at that moment and, yeah, smashed into it really hard. So it was a real shame. It did kind of sail the race for me. I wanted to see see those guys go go head-to-head-to-head to head to head, um, in the finale. I think it would have been really interesting to see the dynamic with Alaphilippe probably attacking on either the Paderberg uh, because he wouldn't want to go to the line with these guys. So I think it's a shame, but it's just no one really to blame. I don't, I don't think there needs to be a witch hunt every time there's an incident. Sometimes just shit things happen. Yeah, that's true. I believe the same thing, and I just dislike that people were pointing directly at the motorbike because, yeah, the motorbike is supposed to go out of the way. You could say that he should go to the other side of the road, but that motorbike, if he went to the other side of the road, Wout Fanard would have looked for that motorbike on that side to try and use the, the draft. So, yeah, it, I don't feel like there's anyone really to blame. It's just shit for the race. And there's going to be people that always say that it's his motorbike's driver. And I think Remco tweeted that something along the lines of... Uh, Motard de Mer or something in French. Uh, but yeah, that's maybe an initial reaction and he probably will regret putting that up in the same way that Lefebvre sometimes does. So yeah, in the end, I believe that it's not the motorbike's fault. I believe that it's not Wout Fanard's fault, even though he looked for the danger a tiny bit. I don't believe that it's really Alaphilippe's fault, even though he was inattentive. You can't really expect to be attentive the whole damn race, but obviously it sucks that he wasn't attentive at that exact moment. And Vanderpool, well, you can't really blame Vanderpool for sure because he just evaded it and was lucky to be on his bike as well. So Alaphilippe fell. It looks like he broke something in his arm. I don't know the exact injury, but let's hope it's not too bad. It's going to be end of season anyway, so that's obviously not an excuse. He's broken for something either injury. in his hand or his shoulder. I'm pretty sure De Koenig could put out a statement. Um, so you can go and check that out. They tweeted it. But just to clarify the race situation now after the Alaphilippe crash, 25 k's to go. We've got the 
last ascension of the Alaquarmont and the Paderberg, one minute and 15, the gap from Wadvenat and Mathieu van der Poel now on their own to a chasing group who is very tired with Bertiol, Askren now, obviously De Koenig are chasing full gas with Alaphilippe having crashed, but they're tired too. Uh, Christoph, etc. very large group behind them of sort of all the guys you'd expect, except Pedersen actually who'd crashed. Uh, so Nyssen, Dylan van Baal, Degenkolb, Benoit, Dylan Turns actually had a good race. He, he, they're all back in that group. But a minute 15 with Matthew van der Poel and Wapenaert, they were each relaying 100%. seemed to me they were, all, they were fully committed the entire time. And some people were saying, oh, well, should Matthew van der Poel sit on? And even on the, I mean, we'll cut to the chase, really. They do the Ardequarmont and the Paderberg. And did you see any real move from either of them, Benji? Like van der Poel went in front for the Paderberg. There was no move on the Quarmont. And Van der Poel, I think, rode within himself. I didn't see an attack from either of them. Looked like Wild Van Aert kind of rolled over him at the end to keep pulling. So, yeah, no attacks there. Did that surprise you that they were both happy to go into the last flat 12 to 13 Ks together without attacking each other at all? Oh, I'm not sure, to be honest. We've got an adequate amount that is most likely not going to make any difference between the two. We saw Wild Van Aert do the first no, oh, we saw Van der Poel do the first portion of the Adequatamont and Van Aert take on the second portion. So it was like they just said, 50-50, let's both do each side. And eventually they crossed that without any action, like you said. And the Baterberg was just Van Aert sitting in Van der Poel's wheel. And Van der Poel, the only difference there is that Van der Poel's the kind of guy that tries to use that small border by the side of the Baterberg every single second. And Every single time I was saying, please don't ride into that barrier. Please don't ride into that barrier. And eventually he got out of that pretty unharmed since he didn't crash. But like, it just looks different if you see them climb the path already. You've got Wout Finard using the middle of the road and Van der Poel just trying to save as much energy by using little tricks and little technique that he has because he's great at technique on the bike. And that causes him to try this stuff and he likes doing that most likely. But again, no action on the part of the Vatican. They were crossing that with a solid gap on the group behind. I think it was a good 58 seconds or up to a minute and five seconds somewhere after they crossed the last part of the Vatican with 14 kilometers left of pure flatness into Audenarde. And behind, we saw some people attacking on those on those ascensions. The Audequatamont had basically the full Audequatamont done by Oliver Narsen. And you can blatantly say that he dropped everybody and it was not that he made an acceleration or anything. He just rode a pace and everybody dropped off his wheel. And after the Autoquadamont, he tried to keep that gap. He tried as much as possible. And we saw him the next time on the Paterberg having a good 10 second to 12 second gap on the others. So I was thinking he's most likely not as good on the Paterberg as some of the more punchy types in that second group, like a Betiol and such. But Gosh, Betiol was suffering and the rest of the group as well. So behind, everybody was basically done for. And I didn't really expect any differences to come out of that either, except potentially catching Oliver Narsen because it's a really hard attempt to be forcing against the whole group because now you've got a quick step pacing in that group since Philippe's not in the running anymore. So Osgren and Lampard and such are now pacing again in the second group, potentially trying to launch a sprint for one of their riders in there. But... You've got Oliver Nassen that after the last Baterberg, 
I think a good three kilometers after that was around 50 seconds behind the first two riders in the race and was getting caught because there's this wide road with a false flat section after departed Bergen that was killing him and he was back in the group back in the second group with a good 50 second gap but they came closer and closer did you ever think that they were gonna catch those two riders again I actually put a live bet on Christoph to win the race at massive odds <laughs> because I thought Amstel Gold Race 2019 where they'd sit up because both of them were fully committed to the sprint for the entire Matthew van der Poel, whether it would have made more sense even despite what happened later, whether it would have made more sense for him to pull or sit on, he's not going to sit on the entire time on Wout van Aert because he's, he's too proud to do that. And he doesn't look at Wout van Aert as someone better than him in a sprint either. He looks at him as a guy he's beaten in CX, beaten many times, and is equal and a guy he can beat in a head-to-head sprint. So he's just not going to sit on like that. And then if he loses the race, he'll get brought back, get absolutely roasted in the media. So that's why it never really was an option for him psychologically to to not pull. And because of that, I never thought they were – I didn't think they were going to get brought back unless then they – get to the final sprint, and this kind of started happening, they get to about the last K with a full 50 seconds. So they have a massive... They, they were pulling turns with each other well into the last into the last kilometre. And it's when they hit the Flam Rouge, they were like, okay, now it is okay for us to start playing cat and mouse. Um, so, which was kind of good to see, actually. And so Van der Poel's obviously trusted his sprint. No attack on Paterberg. Van Aert seemed very happy to trust his sprint. and they then begin soft pedaling and suppress. Like they, Van der Poel goes on the front, he goes on the right hand barrier, and they're going so slowly, like 30Ks an hour. And this is why I sort of have that little bet on Christoph, because he's going to win the bunch sprint from behind, and they were gaining on them. But it was just such a big gap, they weren't actually able to close it down. Um, it was still like a, well, it was only an eight second margin in the end, but. Vanderpool on the right-hand barrier, they slow it down. He's just looking, looking, looking constantly at Van Aert, who's marking him. Van Aert doesn't really, if you remember Kwiatkowski against Sagan in Harold Becker, I can't remember which year, he, he likes to shade the wheel a fair bit. He, he leaves a fair gap to get a run at the wheel. Um, Van Aert wasn't doing that. He was quite close, actually, almost overlapping Van Aert's wheel to the left-hand side. And Van Aert waited late. Both of these guys, like my heart rate was at 255 watching this and they're just cool as a cucumber watching each other. 250 metres, nothing. 225 metres, still nothing. 200, nothing. 175, looking at each other. 100, about 160, maybe 150, Van Aert kicks and you can see him like get out of the saddle properly. Van der Poel immediately snaps and Van Aert's come off the wheel straight away but from behind Van der Poel on the barriers, he's going left. Van der Poel snaps, and for that five seconds, when they first both start sprinting, almost at exactly the same amount of time, maybe Van der Poel decided to go at that moment too, and it was just a coincidence, but I think Van Aert triggered him with something. For that first five seconds, equally as fast. I don't even think, maybe even Van der Poel's a little bit quicker, going maybe from like, 38 k's an hour or whatever they're going 42 k's an hour all the way up to to 60 i think van der poel was quicker in that acceleration but then eventually van Aert, who never had a draft never had a draft on van der poel van Aert starts to inch it back 
as they get closer to the line, inching it back. Both of them held a really straight line, and it came down to a throw that Van Aert was not able to gain enough on Matthew van der Poel. And van der Poel, with the big throw at the line, one Tour of Flanders, he followed the Philippe move before the Tyenberg. He was in pretty good positioning all day. I don't think he really... I think he rode a really good race for Matthew van der Poel. He, yeah, he followed all the right moves and was with the favourites. He wasn't having to close big gaps on his own. He worked with Van Aert and backed himself for the sprint in the finale. He didn't attack at all. He thought, I can beat this guy head-to-head when probably we're all thinking, oh, well, Van Aert won Tour de France sprint stages. He's a like a like probably a better sprinter than Matthew van der Poel. And then he did him in the sprint. He didn't go too early. He waited, and Van Aert never really got a benefit of actually being behind him because he didn't really get a lead out at all. In fact, it just meant that Van der Poel was closer to the line when they both started sprinting. Uh, so a fantastic victory from, from Matthew Van der Poel. Did you, did you think there was any – was it just the best man won today, Benji? I think, I think that's true, uh, to be honest. But do you think there was anything different Van Aert could have done – in that sprint, or did I miss miss anything from those guys going head to head in that sprint? Well, it's hard to say that they did something wrong. I feel like both of them gave it their all. I think earlier on in the race, maybe Wout van Aert should have been a bit more in position when the move of Alaphilippe and and Vanderpool happened, because then he wouldn't have to close get down that gap and potentially had a tiny bit more energy at the end of the day, because that did use a lot of energy from him. But in the sprint itself, it's Ah, it's difficult because I think the fact that they started surplusing, that they started soft pedaling, is a very big advantage for Vanderpool because Vanderpool has a way better acceleration, initial kick than Van Aert does. Van Aert has a good kick, but it's not near Vanderpool because Vanderpool is known for having that. So the slower you go into the sprint, the more you give an advantage to Vanderpool, and he knows that. He said it after the race. I had to make the run into the sprint as slow as possible because I know I've got a better acceleration and that's very, very intelligent riding from Van der Poel. And we've spoken about it before that his decision-making in races is often a bit questionable. Today it was not. Today it certainly was not and not in the sprint either because he thought about the fact that he had to slow it down in the sprint to make sure that he would have an advantage over Van Aert and it paid off. And that itself deserves respect. And maybe Van Aert should have thought about that, but that's a very tiny detail and I don't think you can blame them. I think the best rider or smartest sprinter here won the final. I'm not sure it's, yeah, I think that you can say best sprinter, but potentially if the sprint started a tiny bit earlier, Fanat could have had a better chance. You know, he's better with longer sprints, but I don't know. I feel like it's all talking about speculating about what ifs and in the end, Vanderpool won. He totally deserves it. What a wonderful race by both of them. And honestly, one of the best RVV editions I've seen in ages. I think this is really nitpicking, but I think Van Aert could have triggered him a little bit earlier. I think if, if Van Aert twitched with 225 to go, second wheel, and, and the, the benefit of being second wheel, right, is so you can get a draft for at least 50 to 75 metres. Uh, as you get up to speed and as you're at speed, you get some sort of a draft. So if you both start sprinting with 125, 140 to go, that, that benefit is not as high and it's lessened. So I think he could have triggered 
Van der Poel, maybe. You've seen Kwiatkowski do that before, I think, to, to Sagan um, when he's been drafting Sagan. But in the end of the day, Van Aert was probably like, well, head-to-head, I can beat this guy in a sprint. So as long as I just get a clear run at the line off his wheel with 150 to go, when I choose to go, I should win. Um, so yeah, that's really by the by. Um, just something to think about in the future and so, sometimes the difference between races who like Kwiatkowski, who can beat guys in a better, who are better sprinters than them by using every single trick in the book to get the most out of their sprint in a head-to-head finale. But, yeah, it, was, it lived up to its expectations, Tour of Flanders, um, today. I couldn't couldn't take my eyes off the screen for the last 50 kilometres. You've got Alaphilippe attacking multiple times, Van der Poel following, Wout van Aert having to bridge, the Alaphilippe unfortunate crash, which... Sort of unfortunately added to the drama, and then that the head-to-head sprint between the two favourites was yeah so exciting. And predictably, you know who won the bunch sprint for third, eight seconds behind Alexander Kristoff, an unbelievably consistent record in Tour of Flanders. He's won the race before, but yeah, coming third, very good result for him. Fourth was Anthony Turgis for Team Total Direct Energy, big result for them. Uh, a lot of UCI points for him there. That's a lot more more UCI points than maybe winning some of those smaller races. Yves Lampard, fifth for De Koenig, Dimitri Clays, or Clays, sixth for Kovadis, seventh Oliver Narsen, who rode very, very strong today. He deserved better than seventh. Dylan Van Baal, eighth. John Degenkolb, ninth. Teich tenth. And uh, Turns and Seneschal, eleventh and twelfth. And Valentin Madawa had a good race as well today. He actually... He attacked a little bit earlier. Um, but yeah, Betty Ol missed the move, so he wasn't really able to make any difference on the climbs. So I'm not sure he had the, the best legs today. And I think the strongest riders in the race were clearly Alaphilippe, Van der Poel and, and Van Aert, and we got to see those guys doing battle at least until the, the Alaphilippe cr- crash. But, yeah, was this one of the best Tour of Flanders editions you've watched, Benji, or were you watching the Giro like you said you were going to do yesterday? <laughs> I tried to focus on both, and I'm not going to lie, the last 15 kilometers or like the last 20 kilometers of RVV, I was totally focused on RVV. The majority of my my eyes were focused on RVV, and there was a small, limited amount of eyesight pointed at the screen that was displaying the Giro with limited action until the last climb. So, yeah, I, I knew what I was doing, <laughs> and the majority of uh, my attention was in that moment spent watching RVV, who, as I said before, best edition I've seen in a while. And yeah, it's a race that is quite high up in my in my rankings of races that I like in the season. I said yesterday that the hype for it was less than the previous years because it's lying in the middle of the Giro now. But the moment that race started it, it just started. The hype was there and I was back in the game. And I like that. It's a bit of a shame that Roubaix is not after this. I gotta be honest, like, it feels odd to have an RVV without Roubaix, but I guess that's the special jests of uh, the Corona year, and hopefully we can have a somewhat normal year next year. But, I don't know, I want to be op- optimistic, but it's hard. Nonetheless, Tour of Flanders. Paris-Roubaix would have been the tiebreaker. One monument each now for Van der Poel and Van Aert. The feud, is in- the rivalry is intensifying they would have had that Paru Bay tiebreaker, which would have been would have been awesome. But yeah, going on to the Giro, Benji, Benji, which you 
we're focusing on for the first. I got. To, I only tuned in, <laughs> in the last twelve k's. I got. To, I'm being honest. I only watched the Piangalalo climb, which was where the main action was. So I didn't miss too much. I don't think. But yeah, 185 k stage, few few climbs, two three cat twos, and then a Piangalalo climb um, afterwards, which was 10 k's at nine percent. I think the main the main part of it. Yeah, Benji, what, what happened before that climb? Anything notable that we might have missed if we were all focusing on Flanders? Just mainly that there was a extremely large breakaway. I had hands down 100% on the breakaway winning today's stage. And, uh, well, you'll hear in a second if that was true or not. A breakaway with more than 10 riders. So once again, it's not counting towards a classification. Boo-hoo for the people that are trying to gain that. Davide Villela for Movistar together with no teammates. I think Samitier was trying to bridge up. And eventually did so as well. Mark Baden for Bahrain, the rider that punctured losing from Narvaez accordingly in stage 12. Daniel Navarro, he's been out of picture a bit since he joined Israel's startup nation, but he was in the break today and didn't really show off too much. So I guess the only thing I can say is that I saw his face, which is still a cool thing. Thomas Jens, Lotto Sudal, I was one of the riders I had personal financial interest in today. And um, well, that didn't turn out great, I can tell you that. Giovanni Visconti, we had Andrea Vendramen, another Italian, another Italian with Boaro, Rohan Dennis for Ineos Grenadins, Zardini, Chirico, Holmes, says the tweet, but I'm pretty sure it's Holmes, and Nathan Haas for Cofidis. That is the breakaway of today. They had three climbs to go over. I always ended up watching the moment that they hit the descent, so don't ask me who took the k points, but let's be real. It's not too important, I think. I'm going to take a look just in case that the standings changed. Yes, it did. Visconti took most of the points and is the new leader of the KOM standings. Head of Guerrero, who, if I heard correctly, was just missing the breakaway by like a tiny bit because he was trying to get out there every single time. And then, yeah, the gap was like a minute and he, he gave up. So that is Guerrero's time today. I think the majority of the points today were also gained on the final ascension, so the winner of the stage would gain like 40 points or something along those lines, maybe 20 points, something like that. So a lot of points at the end of the stage. When it comes to that breakaway, it became pretty clear after the third ascension that the break was not going to make it. The gap was down to 2 minutes 40, and one rider was left on the road because Rohan Dennis decided to go on a solo ride from that breakaway and... The rest of the break got gobbled up slowly but surely on the parkour. I think they started the Bianca Valo climb with a good minute with Dennis on the others. So didn't look too bright for Dennis. And that was very clear very quickly. It's a steep climb, not a 4% long climb. So on a 4% climb, you'd expect Dennis to be able to hold a certain amount of rods. But there's steep sections in this one. So it's rather unlikely that Dennis can make it on a finish like this. But then we started looking at the Peloton, who had been controlling the day basically by Sunweb. On every single climb throughout the day, I noticed Sunweb being at the front. I think NTT tried to pop their heads out once and so often, but mainly Sunweb controlling today's stage and also the Koenig sitting in their wheels and sometimes putting one guy up there to try and help a tiny bit. But... Again, majority of the work today was by Sunweb, and once the last climb started, we saw that the best team in the race is Sunweb. And honestly, what a masterpiece, because they put their team at the front, 
and started doing an Ineos train. So we can call it the jungle yeah, train by now. <laughs> Sunweb postal train is crazy seeing this from the young guys. And just to remind everybody quickly, Kelderman 56 behind Almeida in Amalia Rosa going into this second rest day where um, apparently everyone's, you know, there's these COVID tests, etc. But are looking good so far with the, the daily tests they've had. But yeah, still 56 seconds behind going into the second rest day. And then you've got. Another minute back to all the other main contenders apart from Full Sang, pretty much. And then, yeah, about a minute covering all those guys from Bilbao all the way down to to uh, Gagenhart, who was today started in 11th, 344 behind Almeida. But can I just say, Australia, Australian racing in Grand Tours, we're going to dominate, baby. Chris Hamilton, Jai Hindley, Seb Berwick. We're going to have 45-year-old Richie Port. If we have, if there's any hilly world championships road race with like big climbs in, in about 10 years, oh, not 10 years, in about three years, Remco better watch out. I might have to jump on the Chris Hamilton, Jai Hindley hype train because they drove it really hard. And I'm not just saying, oh, well, it's a lower level zero. They, they did a good job against who? If you go and look at the power data, which is now up on Strava, etc., verified across Mazanara and McNulty, Hamilton was driving it at like 6.3, 6.4 at the base of the Piancavallo, which, by the way, the steepest part was is at the bottom. As I, as we said in the preview pod yesterday, you got 10%, 9%, 10%, 11 11.2% in the first 6Ks, and then it flattens out at the end. And Sunweb made it really, really hard. And I can't remember who the first GC guy was that actually dropped Benji. Was they, eventually, all of them just about dropped. Uh, I think it might have been Costa Vivo. He went. He went out the back yes. door pretty quickly. I think. Yes, Pozzo Vivo was one of the first riders that started having a hard time. I think he had a puncture earlier in the stage as well, and that was on the third ascension in the uh, stage. So he had time to come back and did so quite easily. But he still had a teammate when he dropped. So Ben O'Connor, I think it was, that was helping him out, trying to keep him up there. But yeah, if you drop with about a good 10 kilometers, 12 kilometers to go on the Piancavallo climb, there's just a major climbing section still to come and you know you're going to lose minutes today. And yeah, Pozzo Vivo did. He did somewhat have the ability to try and keep himself relatively close to the other people that ended up dropping after him because I think the next people that got into trouble was Bilbao with a teammate and that was not Ben Steiner. The teammate that helped him out was Dolman fucking Novak. I'm so proud of the guy. I've been a supporter of him very secretly for years. And it's the first time I see him climbing at this level. He was the second last rider to drop in that Santos to the Nunder stage that Matthew Holmes won this year in the breakaway. And today he was an amazing climber, was able to follow quite long and helped out Bilbao quite well and... Props to the guy. Genuinely, Domin Novak, write him down. He's going to win something in the future. I have no clue what, and I won't pretend to know what, so I'll continue with my story. So Bilbao was down, not crashing, but out of the group. And we saw that there were still three Bora riders in the group. That is Fabro, Micah, and Conrad. But not very long after seeing Bilbao drop, we saw Conrad having trouble. And accordingly, we saw Fabro dropping to help out Conrad. But... If you got a rider that is dropping at that point, 
on a very steep section on the climb because that was a steeper section of this Piancavallo, then you're not going to have the ability to bring him back magically if you're a domestique. You will try and be either a bit of a placebo effect, I'd say, as in you've got a teammate, so you feel like you've got support, and because of that, you've got a bit more to give. But in the end, it's not going to be able to bring you back with eight kilometers left on the climb. So very unfortunate for Conrad, but he looked to be done at that point. And that made people on Twitter, directly in hindsight, say that Conrad should have been the guy that dropped the back force again on that stage. I don't know. Was it stage 13 or something? Where, 13, uh, yep. Yeah, where Lucy ended up winning. But that's all stuff in hindsight and a bit of an unworthy discussion at this point. But Micah was still hanging on. Nibali was still hanging on. And Almeida sitting there with Masnada at the back, having somewhat of a trouble. Masnada is not a rider, but Masnada was looking like he was one of the next riders to draw. But suddenly, there was a shock on dry soil. He didn't look too bright anymore, Vincenzo Nibali. Nibali has these real collapses every time he drops. It's not like when you drop that you keep up and you keep yourself five meters behind. Nibali is the kind of rider that just hangs on until he totally dies and then drops basically directly to the next group. And yeah, Nibali off the back. Did you have any surprise in that or do you did you somewhat see it coming? Uh, I did not expect Jai Hindley to drop Vincenzo Nibali and put, I think over a minute and a half into him on this climb. I thought <laughs> that I thought Sunweb were going to pace in the last section of the climb and set up Kelderman to maybe attack in the last 1,500 metres and gain 10 seconds plus some bonus seconds. I did not expect them to do to set up a Hamilton, then Hindley train for the entirety of the climb. And Hindley must have done this climb at like six watts per kilo for the entirety at least because he did the whole thing on the front. I thought eventually, well, it's like he has to blow up and he's dropped McNulty, Nibley, Fulsang, Bilbao, Conrad, Micah. Eventually, Juan Almeida drops, although he did a fantastic job, Almeida, riding this climb at his own pace, saving the Malia Rose, a very impressive ride from him, the best climb or the best ride from the GC guys on Piangavalo except for Hindley, Kelderman, and Gagenhart. Gagenhart, the man who I haven't really mentioned yet, was the last in that group with Kelderman and Hindley. Kelderman wasn't pulling. Now, Benji and I, I think agreed offline that it would have been optimal for Kelderman to work and pull, but he wasn't able to. I, I think the pace from Hindley was too hot and Kelderman was under pressure. He was sitting third wheel, Gagenhart second wheel following Hindley, and Henley just paced the entire climb, pretty much. And they weren't able to extend the gap over Almeida to what they needed it to be, which is sort of in that 55-second region pending the bonus seconds, remembering that the, the GC gap between Kelderman and Almeida was 56 seconds going into this rest day where maybe low probability, I think, but possible that the Giro could get called. Uh, hopefully, fingers crossed it doesn't. So I thought, oh, well, Sunweb should pace with Kelderman if they can, but he couldn't. And clearly it was Gagan Hart who had the fresher legs. Hindley was pulling for long enough, deep into the last, pretty much the last like 400 metres, 300 metres on this climb, where it does flatten out. So it's harder to catch up, I think. Um, once the gaps are made, 
and you've got a domestique working selflessly, it is harder to catch up where the draft was really beneficial for Kelderman and Gagenhart in the last, I think, two to three kilometres. And they've got a gap of about 37 seconds on Almeida. Kelderman starts coming around Gagenhart, and I don't really know what Kelderman was trying to do. I think he was trying to attack early and increase the pace because Hindley was slowing so that they maintained the gap to Almeida and then maybe beat Gagenhart in the sprint. But it's clear that Kelderman had no legs at all at the end. And Gagenhart gave him the look 2.0 Lance style over the right shoulder in the drops and kicked away from him. Uh, taking I don't know what like the fifth <laughs> fifth stage win or something for Ineos in this uh, Giro d'Italia and definitely by far the biggest stage win of uh, or the biggest win of Taylor Gagenhart's career. I don't think he'd won a he had won, hadn't won a World Tour race up to this point. He won two stages of the Tour of the Alps last year, but this is clearly his biggest win. Uh, he's twenty five years old and. That was a high-level performance because this climb, they did at a really good pace. McNulty, who, go and check out his Strava, McNulty finished something like oh, 2 minutes and 43 back. His Strava power says he did 6.1. Now, I don't think he did 6.1 and lost 2.43. I think that's oh, that's not correct. Either his weight's wrong on Strava or the power meter's overeating. I think the VAM suggests as well with the combination of him drafting that he'd more be in that 5.8, 5.9 region maybe, but still massive performance from Hindley. Very, very good level for Gagan Hart, who probably looks like the strongest climber out of the GC men in this race, except Benji. We now have two Sunweb men in second and third on GC. So do you think... Jai Hindley, who's now third, moving up from 10th to third, despite pulling as a domestique, he's 256 behind Almeida. Do you think he can actually, well, can Sunweb use him as a genuine GC threat to attack rather than pull in this third week? I think we've got a difference here between how we analyze Jumbo in the Tour de France compared to Sunweb here, in that in... The Tour de France, the gap between Kelderman, well, between Roglic and the rest in the Tour de France was not as high as the difference between Kelderman and the rest here. And Kelderman needs to find a way to get through this last week without trouble. And I would dare to say that you use Hindley for that. I would not go away and use the same tactic that we applied to Jumbo, that they should try and launch away with Hindley at a certain point. Unless you've got a 1v2 situation or you've got a 1v1v1v2 situation where you've got plenty of riders that are alone from the competitors and then Hindley and Kellermon, then you can start attacking with Hindley. But unless a situation like that develops, I'll tr- I would try to use Hindley for Kellermon because his gap to the others is major. He's got two minutes and basically 41 seconds to his teammate, but two minutes and 42 seconds to... Tao Gegenhardt up there, and he looked to be the strongest climber today, I would guess, except for Jai Hindley. But yeah, then again, he was working as a domestic, so it's hard to judge if he would be the same in a leader role. I don't know, I feel like the difference between Kelderman and the rest of the competitors is so really large. Three minutes, three minutes, thirty, no, four I don't, minutes. I don't think so. Uh, I, I believe that the gap is huge and it's going to be really hard. To I think Gagenhardt could, could have dropped him. 
today. I think Gagenhart was focusing on stage win and I think Gagenhart could have dropped him at some point. I think Hindley was marginally stronger than, or was stronger than Kelderman on the climb. Um, I don't think this is over by any stretch. They still got 15 seconds to gain on Almeida, who's 15 seconds ahead. Gagenhart, will Ineos change strategy and start working 100% for him rather than going for stage wins? You think they should? They certainly should. Because they've got the five stage wins. Let's be honest, they're going to get a, a sixth one with Ghana on, on the 21st stage. If Ghana stays in the race until then, let's hope he doesn't crash anywhere or something. So on paper, they've got that sixth stage secured. Let's be honest, Ghana's going to win that time trial. And I believe that they should change their strategy. It's not going to be that obvious for one of theirs to put a rider in the breakaway to try and win the stage. I think it's still relatively possible with the likes of a Castro Viejo, but why do that if you've got an opportunity of winning the Giro magically? It's got to be hard, though. Two minutes, 42 seconds. I believe that the gap is large, and that's going to be three minutes if you count the time that Kalimann is going to put into Gegenhard on the final time trial. So he needs to find a way to get three minutes on Kelderman, and I find that a lot of time. And the thing is, Kelderman... Despite the myth that Kelderman has a lot of bad luck, that bad luck is only because of crashes or bad moments of punctures, but it's never about collapsing to me. I've checked the history. In the third week of a Grand Tour, he stayed the same position 14th to 14th, 7th to 5th. He had 4th to 4th in the third week. So four times or five times that he was in that closer regions in the GC. He did not lose time. He did not lose places in the third week. And I believe that's a bit of a myth. As long as Kelderman doesn't crash, he is winning this Giro for me. Yeah, I think so. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm, not as com- I'm not as confident about Kelderman as you are. Um, just based on how he looked at the end of this climb, I wouldn't be surprised if Honestly, if Hindley had attacked harder on a steeper section, it's possible that he brings Taylor Gagenhart with him and Kelderman is dropped. Uh, so that is, the risk. that is the risk if they use Hindley as an attacker, forcing uh, Gagenhart to chase, is that what if Gagenhart drops Kelderman, who is chasing, and that acceleration puts their leader into difficulty. That's always the risk with that strategy, which you've got to think about as well. Uh, rather than just pulling and setting a moderate or a steady high pace with Hindley. Um, but I think Sunweber in pole position. they got two guys second and third on GC. Um, so they it is looking like their Giro to lose as long as they can keep putting Almeida under pressure in those big climbs in the third week. Um, but Almeida, hats off to him. He's still keeping himself in the race. So just rounding out the top 10 on the GC right now, going to the second rest day, Almeida first. Kelderman second, 15 seconds back. Hindley third, 2.56 back. Gagenhardt a second behind Hindley in fourth. Bill Bow drops two spots, now 3.10 back. And now nearly well, about three minutes behind Kelderman. Micah, Micah sixth, Nibali seventh, Pozzavivo eighth, Conrad ninth, Masnada tenth, and McNulty drops seven spots down to four minutes and 29 back despite... His numbers looking pretty good. So um, obviously it was a high level, high level today, and it goes to show you need a train to make the climb hard. You need other riders that are riding at a high level, like Hamilton and Hindley, to make 
make it really hard. Um, whereas Aetna wasn't as high a level as today. So really impressive from all the guys today in this back end of the second week of the Giro. I can't wait to see what happens in the next third week. But rest day recap tomorrow. Moving on, so we've just watched Flanders. We've just watched the Giro finish where so much crazy stuff is happening. Moving on to the Women's Tour of Flanders, 150, 135Ks, Odenard to Odenard, and pretty much the same finale really as the men's. You've got uh, Canaryberg, Tyenberg, Kreuzberg, and then the Arquarmont and Paterberg with oh, about 20Ks, 23Ks to go in the race. So similar finale. I really like uh, their finale. And it was all together. When I joined it, it was about 40Ks to go. It was all together. Big favourites being Van Vleuten, Van der Breggen, obviously, Popecki, I think. She was in with a decent shout today. Uh, Cecily Uttuk, Ludwig, Longoborghini, Diagnan. Um, yeah, Marta Bastianelli, winner last year, wasn't here because her team was out for COVID. So that, that were some of the big contenders for today. Mariana Voss wasn't here either. Uh, Grace Brown for Mitchell and Scott, maybe. Amanda Spratt, they're back. Um, but they were working probably for Annemiek van Vleuten, who was looking pretty good. They're all together. And then there was an attack from uh, Rihanna Marcus for CCC. Go and check out her YouTube channel, by the way. She posts pretty regularly. Uh, I watch most of her videos, to be honest. Yeah, I find them pretty interesting. Uh, she attacked with Amelia Lusik for Canyon Shram, and they got a decent gap, like 30 seconds. And I think it was Sunweb, and I forgot to mention their favourites, sorry, which was Liana Lippert and Florchi Mackay, and they were chasing with uh, Corin Rivera. So pretty pretty good chase, and it was clear that they were going to get brought back, I think, uh, not before the Kreuzberg, but definitely before the, the Aldequarmont and the Paderberg. But got to be clear, Bulls Dormans had the strongest team today by far, and that really impacted the way this race was ridden. Chantal van der Broek-Black, World champ, previous world champ, Anna van der Breggen, current double world champ, and probably the best rider and female rider in the world right now. And Amy Peters, underrated. Like she could be, she'd be a leader on, on in her own right on a lot of other teams. And I'm probably missing somebody as well. I don't remember Dietrichsen being there. Um, to be honest, for Bulls Dormans. So, sorry, Julian Dor. And then they've got the trump card. How could I forget? of having Julien Dor just sitting there, probably best or second best sprinter after uh, Lotte Kopecky. I think she lost the Belgian national champs to Kopecky, but she beat her the other day. They got that, her sitting in. So they, they really controlled the race, Bulls, Dormans, um, and that's really what shaped it. With Annemiek van Vleuten probably knowing that, she does an attack initially by Chantal Vandenbroek-Black with like 28 Ks to go. She was trying to attack across to the gap. And there's Lisa Bernal of Vandenbreggen and I think Longoborghini closing it down with Diagnan sitting back in the bunch. But then when Annemiek van Vleuten went Benji with 27 and a half to go, this is before the Quarmont and the Paterberg, did you think, here we go again? Uh, it's all over, just like in like so many times we've seen before? Or... Was she looking a bit more mortal today? I don't know. I feel like she was looking mortal. And I definitely wasn't saying that, oh, this is over. I'm not sure what you were thinking, but there was plenty of action still in that last group, in that elite group section after that. 
that still showed that people there had some energy left. The originally bulls weren't really pacing that hard, and then Van der Breggen decided that the best strategy was to attack across and chase Van Vleuten, and this is where the race got really, really interesting. So they're before the Paderberg, before the Ardequiremont, they've got 24, 25k to go. Van der Breggen, probably the strongest rider in the race, right, because she shuts this gap down ASAP, closing across from all the other favourites who were in that group. She didn't want to bring – they didn't want to – Bulls Dormans didn't want to work and bring all those riders with them. They didn't want, they didn't want to bring Lotte Kopecky, Dignan with a teammate across that gap to Van Vleuten. So they, they attack with under Van der Breggen. She closes the gap to Annemie Van Vleuten, and she just sits on straight away. And – I thought that was it was really interesting actually seeing the world champ going across. It was like in the men's race you got Van der Poel and Wout van Aert and so the big heavy hitters, the two big favourites. They worked together all the way to the line. And then in the women's race, you got the two heavy hitters, uh, world champs in twenty nineteen or eighteen and now twenty twenty. And then Van der Breggen's like, no, nah, I'm sitting up. I'm not working with you, Van Vleuten. I'm not going with you to the line, and then then sprinting or having you attack me on the on the Paderberg. I've got Chantal van den Broek Black and Amy Peters behind. I'm happy to sit up and wait for them. And I was like, oh, at the time I thought, oh, it's it's a little bit risky because by the same token, you've got Brabantje Power winner and Liège second place Grace Brown in that group, so she could work with Anemi van Vleuten and attack. When she comes with them, the other bulls riders across that gap, and that's exactly what happened. Actually, it all came back together. Van Vleuten was kind of laughing at Van der Breggen, um, having completely neutralised her, and Grace Brown immediately attacked, but she was closed down. And I guess it was a shame that often the people closing down the Mitchell and Scott attempts. So Bulls were clearly the strongest riders in the race, but often the people closing down the Mitchelton Scott attempts were not the Bulls riders. It was Lisa Brenauer. I saw closing down attacks more than really riding her own race. Um, and, yeah, longer Borghini for Trek maybe. And they get onto the Quartermont, 19Ks to go. Lisa Brenauer, as I said, German national champion, I think, running. She had no teammates. She started going to the front, increasing the pace. I saw, did you see Annemiek van Vleuten, Benji? Do you think she looked that comfortable on the cobbles? She kind of looked, she like went into the grass a bit. It was kind of, she was all over the place um, at that moment. Like what were you seeing from her there? Do you think she was tired or just not, doesn't have the power and maybe the weight of someone like London Brook Black? I think it's a bit of a combination, but you got to keep in mind that she's got a worse history in the last few months of having that injury, having to come back from that. We can't just neglect and think that she's at full force here. And I don't think that's the case either. She looked a bit out of comfort on the cobble sectors. And I think that's for quite a few of the riders up there. I think that Uther Ludwig was similar in that way, that she looked a bit in a bit of an uncomfortable place on the Paterberg, for example. And because of that, I think that we already can question whether it's fastly. I think she she in, in general has a lower weight than the others as well, Ludwig. And if you compare that to Anna van der Bregen and so forth, who are more muscled and can climb onto this more in a what style way instead of an acceleration style way, then there is for me a clear difference between those riders. And because of that, 
I would look more towards the Bulls Dolmans riders in general for a race like this because I believe that they can get away on these hills and because of that they can try and TT it afterwards because we've seen it happen before but did it turn out like that? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Chantal Lannenbrook Black on the Armand, she just flattened it. She attacked in the saddle and Brenau was on the front and couldn't do anything. She couldn't react. Annemiek van Vleuten had just attacked and been brought back by, by van der Breggen before that climb and immediately the gap went out to like 10 seconds, then 15 seconds. Um, no one was really chasing in any cohesive way. Demi Vollering for Paco Tel Volkenberg, who I thought was going to do well. At the, well, she did kind of do well at this race. She just played her cards earlier trying to close this gap to Chantal van den Black, but she was trying to chase to no avail. She, like, accelerated across, but then, yeah, Chantal van den Black was just main, like, she just rode really steady uh, and maintained it and just her consistency of pacing was why she just kept extending that gap. Uh, Longo Borghini then tried to attack across and had Bulls Dorman's riders just following her, sitting on her. That's Amy Peters and Anna van der Breggen. They messed up this chase <laughs> so well. They get onto the Paderberg. I think van Vleuten tried to really accelerate on the Paderberg, but again, she was getting marked by Anna van der Breggen, who was controlling. Um, so we get into about 10K to go. I, I had calculated the gap at 22 seconds at this point, a bit more than the 17 seconds from the uh, television. And you've got a group, a strong group still. You've got Brenauer, uh, Florchi Mackay for Sunweb. Who else do you have? Annemiek van Vleuten, Grace Brown here as well. I think Longo Borghini, Lotta Kopecky was there, I think, as well, just hanging on, the Belgian sprinter. And there was no cohesion. And I think this was, you see, you do see this often. But it was disappointing for me that you've got Annemiek van Vleuten working on the front, clearly tired. Anyone can see that she was really tired. She's doing her best to close this gap. And it's 22, 25 seconds to a former world champion, Chantal van der Broek-Black, who was looking really strong. And no one worked with van Vleuten. No one moved up to help her in the pivotal moment when the gap wasn't that large, when it was like 15 to 20 seconds. And Vollering... Brenauer Brown as well, Van Vleuten's teammate, was sitting on, not helping. And Van Vleuten, you can, you saw, everyone saw it. She flicked, started shouting, was like, what the hell? She just looks behind, sees two Bulls, Dorman's riders behind her. And, yeah, they're doing a good jo job blocking. But the other riders have to move up, move up, move them out of the way, get on Van Vleuten's wheel, and don't let them in the pace line as much as possible, even if you have to be quite physical with your position. Um, you can just you have to stop them blocking, and you have to work with Van Vleuten if you want to bring this back. And they didn't; they didn't work. So the gap went out, I think, to like thirty seconds. Then Grace Brown attacked the Mitchelton Scott teammate of Anamik Van Vleuten, and we saw this in a previous race. I can't remember which race it was this year, but I called it out on the podcast. I said that was weird, where Van Vleuten was chasing. I think Lizzie Diagnan. Um, maybe in GP Plouet, and Van Vleuten pulled to the point of exhaustion, and then Brown attacked her, and then attacked her over the top, and it didn't really work. And the same thing happened today. And obviously, Amy Peters was marking in the wheel, and so Bulls Dolmans were just marking. That brought everyone with them. 
Then Van Vleuten attacked again, but at this point, 35 second gap, 5Ks left. Chantal van der Rook Black looking very solid and everyone just attacking each other. It we, At this point, you knew that van der Rook Black was going to win and it was a masterclass from Bulls Dormans setting her up. Um, van der Breggen marking van Vleuten. And yeah, those attacks kept happening. Van der Rook Black eventually extended her gap, I think, to about a minute to that chase group who weren't really a chase group, to be honest. I'd say they were... A group fighting for second place for the ba- the way they rode that it it really it just it didn't make a lot of sense to me because all their incentives are aligned right you've got you have to all work together because you cannot close a thirty second gap on your own like at the end of Flanders when you're that tired but anyway Van der Brook Black win wins fantastic team performance from Bulls Dolmans and from the world champ Van der Breggen who rode for her teammates not her own victory today. Just like the way the Dutch women set up Chantal, Chantal van der Broek Black for her world champs win when they let her, they used her as an attacker up the road and no one chased. And then in the bunch sprint, Amy Peters came second and beat Lotte Kopecky to the line. Lisa Brenauer fourth. Good performance again from the Australian Sarah Roy for Mitchell Scott back to back. Good performance from her, performances from her here in Hanvevelhem. Amelia Lusik, struggling to pronounce her name, sixth. Following 7th, Longo Borghini 8th, Stevens 9th, Cavalli 10th, Van der Breggen 11th, Mackay 12th, and Grace uh, Grace Brown, I think 13th or 14th, Van Vleuten 15th, and Ludwig 16th. I think Ludwig was uh, was pretty cooked, actually, at that point. And Lizzie Dignan got dropped. Quite, we didn't mention her. She got dropped earlier. Uh, she she DNF'd, so I'm not sure what really, what really happened with her. But Benji, am I missing something as to why it didn't make sense for those riders to not work cohesively, uh, chasing down the Bulls rider. I think regarding Mitchell and Scott, you've got on the path already that you have Van Vleuten and you've got Grace Brown in that elite group, but you've got Sarah Roy just off the back trying to hold on as much as possible because we know she has a bit more of a sprint than the other ones in her team that are in that group. And I believe that initially, the first moments after the ascension, that... Mitchelton was not riding because they were trying to get Sarah Roy back on the on the back of the group, but it became clear to me that that was not really their incentive either because the moment that Sarah Roy was back, they weren't riding only with Van Vleuten. And I, I believe that Grace Brown should have probably chipped in a bit more. And you've got that team as the only team with multiple riders in that second group, if I recall correctly. So the real responsibility lies on them because you know that other teams that are with soul riders aren't going to work with Mitchelton. And sure, Von Vleuten was riding in front. Everybody sees that she's tired. Brown can attack afterwards, so she clearly had the energy to try and pace. So that's why I'm like a bit mad about how Mitchelton handled that elite group, despite Annemiek Van Vleuten doing the majority of the pacing. I believe that their strategy to try and attack with Grace Brown had basically lost the opportunity for that group to gain time back because they were with multiple riders in the team compared to the others. So you can't expect Lauren Stevens or Alonga Borghini or Demi Vollering to chip in if you've got three riders in that group. So yeah, I think that's the reason that the cooperation was a bit less. But then again, you are right that riders that want to win the race, should work more in this group. 
And yeah, even just mainly, I do want to offer more credit to Bulls Dolmans because Van der Breggen was really good at marking people here. And every single time someone attacked in that group, she was trying to close that down and make sure that they didn't ride away sitting in second wheel to make sure that the pace was blocked and that they'd be looking behind again to see who else was pacing. And then Van Vleuten had to continue. So incredible work by the teammates of Chantal as well. So congratulations to the whole team here, to be honest, because a 1-2 and a wonderful performance to be one of the last races of their season. Is it the last race of the uh, women's season? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I have to look. Uh, Benji, I don't even know what day it is. I haven't spoken to my family in like three weeks. Um, <laughs> I'm not sleeping very well. All I know is that somehow the Vuelta Espana is, is in like two days and we're going to have to do the preview uh, your tomorrow morning. So, yeah, everyone peer pressure Benji to wake up early. Um, for us to do that because it's already 4am and I can't do it right now. (laughs) (laughs) But wrapping this up, I want to give a big shout out and a congrats to uh, Thomas van der Spiegel, if that's how you pronounce his name correctly. Yeah, Thomas van den Spiegel, the CEO of Flanders Classics for putting on Ronde van Vlaanderen today. I want to thank the Belgian government for making sure this race could happen and the Belgian people for what looked to be a pretty safe race overall. I know the Alphalib crash happened, but in terms of spectators, etc., yeah, really good stuff. Um, I really, It was really good to see that and a really good test case, and it's just one of the best races I've ever seen. So like, I got kind of emotional watching it, thinking, Jesus, this is seeing these two go head-to-head amidst this year. You know, I didn't think this was going to be possible. And it's historical stuff. It's like Boonen against Cancellara um, and then Van Vleuten against Van der Breggen head-to-head. Like that's, I love that stuff. Um, and, yeah, thank you for Flanders Classics for making that possible and all the hard work that went into it, making sure that the, the women's race had pretty much full live coverage. It's the same name as the men's race, so they got the brand identification and they time it so that it follows on the interesting part of the race is straight after the Giro and men's Flanders. So really good from Flanders Classics, and I want to give them a big congratulations for a great event today. And also the Giro, pending what happens tomorrow with the testing. Um, it's, it's shaping up to be a really, really fascinating race with some, with some, with some different names as well. So I'm G'd up. Benji, I don't know if Benji actually gets geared up. He's a lot calmer than I am. But um, this was the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson, Giro d'Italia Stage 15, Piancavallo, rack, rack, rack up? Recap, brought to you by Lacole. Wrap up, I'll say. Tour of Flanders, men and women. What a day. What a super Sunday. We'll be back tomorrow with a Vuelta Espana preview. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you then. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 